Very glad to have you as always. Uh, John, I'm going to ask you and David to help me. You all just stay right there. Uh, since COVID, I don't believe we have done this. It's been, a, somebody pointed out, an extremely long time. Uh, I would like uh, any of you, a lot of burdens in this church, a lot of burdens, any of you who would like uh, us to pray for you as a group, uh, don't be shy. Just get up and come down here. Stand here at the front. We're going to pray for you. So not individually, but as a group. So it may be, may be health issues. It may be other emotional issues. Maybe financial issues. Thank you, dear. Just, just come on. Stand right here. I'm going to come down here so you won't feel alone. Uh, Okay. Yeah, and uh, John was just telling me that Bo Griffiths, he's one of our young men in our college career. His father passed away yesterday, and so he's not here this morning. Any of you who have a burden you'd like for looking here, you'd like for us to pray for? Hi, DeAnza. So anybody else? The Lord says, come boldly before the throne of grace in order that you may find grace and mercy to help in time of need. We can do this alone as we do, but we can also do it as a group and the whole body can enter in. So, uh, David, I'm going to ask you and John if the two of you would uh, pray for this group and I'll end it, okay? Thank you all for coming forward. Heavenly Father, we just want to be expressing our gratitude that you came down for us. We could never come up to you. And it's through that that we come in the name of Jesus Christ, who rose from the grave, who paid for our sins, and who restores us into a relationship with you. We pray for each man and woman here who are thinking about themselves or loved ones. We pray for Bo Griffin, who's lost his father yesterday afternoon. We pray for the grief and the trial and the burden of life. We pray for healing, Lord God, because your hand is strong enough to heal. We pray for comfort because there's no comfort like yours. We pray for hope, encouragement, and strength to fight the good fight of faith, Lord, which at times is very difficult. And we just pray for gratitude that we would realize just as we sung how good you are. Pray for each person here that they would experience your spirit in a fresh way. In Jesus' name. And Father, we come to you because you are first able. We can trust that you, whatever our needs are, our concerns, the struggles we have, through your grace, we are healed, we are strengthened, we're comforted, we are guided. We also come to you because you're willing. You love us so dearly. You love us so much that your only begotten son came to die for us. And it's to you, Lord Jesus, we trust, we depend, and we thank you that you intercede on our behalf. Bless each man, each woman, not only up front here, but those within our congregation 
and those who aren't even here today. Speak to them. Hold them. We pray in your name. Our Heavenly Father, we add our prayers to those of these other pastors. We come in thanksgiving, we come in faith and confidence that you care, for you have shown your care to so many of us so many times over the course of our Christian walk. We know that there are many people standing here. They've got a heavy burden of some kind. We know that there are others uh, sitting out there in front of us who also have heavy burdens. You're the great physician. You heal us, Father. Emotionally, you heal us. Physically, sometimes, our Father, it's your will not to do so, but you give us the strength to bear these burdens. We pray that in all of our trials and all of our troubles, we may glorify you as you have been glorified in these people just coming forward and saying that they look to you, they depend upon you. We pray that you will meet every need. They will know that you are with them. They will know that you care for them and that they will be strengthened to face whatever it is they've got to face. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for coming forward. I have uh, told many just recently, I told somebody else that you might not think so, but the lake, as long as I've been here, and I've been here a long time, is a suffering church. There's just a lot of it around, sprinkled throughout our body. Not everybody that I know is suffering was up here this morning. And in others, we're not, they're not even here, not perhaps not able or they're somewhere. But we, uh, we need to lift one another up in prayer, and I believe you do. And you're very good to rise up and help people hands on. And we thank you for those of you who do that. Well, this morning, we're in John chapter 12, verses 23 through 26. And, uh, It's a message that I really wanted to get to. So let me read those verses and then we'll, we'll talk. Oh, I was wondering why I was having cognitive dissonance there. Let's go to John. I was in Luke. I need to be right down here with you. Okay, John chapter 12. Something wasn't reading right. All right. I'll back up to verse 20 just to get the context. You recall that Jesus is on the way to the cross. We call it the uh, triumphal entry. Really, in just a few days, they don't really get it, but he's on the way to the cross. Well, we read in verse 20 that at this gigantic 
festival of the Passover, feast of the Passover, huge annually in Jerusalem. Not the only one, but the, the biggest one. People from all over the world were there. Well over a million, according to Josephus. There were certain Greeks, Gentiles. They called them Greeks in those days. The Jews did. Among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These therefore came to Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And he began and began to ask Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus because they recognized him in some manner or other as one of Jesus' disciples. Well, Philip didn't feel quite so bold himself. And he told Andrew, the brother of Peter, and Andrew and Philip came and they told Jesus, Lord, there there are some Greeks out here. They want to see you. That was a harbinger of things to come. Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Talk a little bit more about that. Truly I say to you, whatever does this mean, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Could talk all morning about that. I won't. He who loves his life, she who loves her life, loses it. It's a paradox, an apparent contradiction, but not really. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him, will honor her. Powerful words there. Well, as you know, because of a recent celebration we had, I have been in the ministry for 60 plus years and counting. From the first day I set foot in a pulpit, I've drawn a bead on something, and I haven't lessened my attention to this day. If you've been around me a long time, you know this. If you haven't, I'm telling you this. I hate, I despise, I loathe cultural Christianity. Of course, it's not so important to know that I do, but the Lord does too. Non-serious Christianity where we're just churchy and we just kind of go through the motions like so many do. And there is a part of that that we know, maybe you don't, but I do. It has a name, two names actually. One is called Easy Believism. The other name for it is Cheap Grace. People somewhere along the line make some sort of idle profession. It is idle because they stay idle. Idle profession of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And actually, except for seeing him go to church once in a while, it would be very hard to separate them from the herd and to identify them as Christians in the serious sense that Jesus is talking about. Now, I need to strike a balance here. Be very careful. I'm trying to strike it right now. We are saved by God's sheer grace through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, not faith plus works or any other thing. But we, that faith through which we're saved is a faith that works. But we're saved by God's grace through faith. It shows up. Let me ask you a question. Most people in this room, not everybody, that's every Sunday, have made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think for a minute. If you were out in the streets going through a normal day and suddenly all the action had to stop and the people who are regularly around you, what could they see that would mark you out, identify you as one of them, a Christian, a disciple, a follower of our Lord Jesus Christ. If it's hard for us to think of anything like that, red alert. We're supposed to sort of stick out. So think about that. Well, now let's back in, dive into what Jesus was saying. He has this entourage of of Gentiles who perhaps are proselytes. A proselyte is a Gentile who has become a Jew, converted to Judaism. And sometimes they were more serious, far more serious than the Jews themselves. They had an edge to them. And so they come to Jerusalem and whether they had heard about him before or heard about him since they had arrived in the city and heard about Lazarus, we don't know. But whatever it was, it ginned up a lot of interest in this Jesus guy. And so they were wanting somebody to introduce them to him. They wanted to get closer to the one. We won't go back to Lazarus, but that was huge. That was all over the city. It could not be denied that he had raised this guy from the dead. They want to see Jesus. Somehow, as I said, they managed to locate this disciple, one of Jesus' lesser disciples, lesser apostles, not as well known as Peter, James, and John. We'd like to meet this Jesus. And so they set the wheels rolling. Well, at first, we don't know what happens afterward. But Jesus is not disinterested. But he's got his disciples around him and he kind of deflects their interest for a moment to teach them. I can never get over this. I don't know about you. But here the Lord is in just days facing the cross, facing horrendous suffering, horrendous suffering. If it were me, 
I would probably be saying, don't anybody bother me. (laughs) But he never loses a teachable moment. Shortly, these disciples are going to take his place. And they're going to be going out to Jerusalem, Judea, and all the world. Speaking under the power of the Holy Spirit in his name. And he's going to teach them till the last minute, so to speak. Interesting you say that, fellows. Let me tell you something. He's been telling them they haven't been getting it. I want you to understand that the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man. That's one of Jesus' messianic titles. The Son of Man to be glorified. What does that mean? We touched on it last week. Let me amplify on it a little more. The end game in the plan of human redemption is to magnify God. The hour that Jesus is talking about refers to that point in time that his glorification is to occur. His glorification refers to a triad, a trinity of closely connected events. His crucifixion, how could that be glorification? Pure humiliation, his resurrection, and his ascension back into heaven. But the centerpiece of his glorification is that part of the events which seems to be not glorification, seems to be not triumph in any way, but seems to be downright humiliation, seems to be not victory, but awful defeat, his crucifixion. Not the case. To understand how Jesus could possibly look at the cross at his hour of glorif- as his hour of glorification, we have to understand the end game. A lot of things you have to understand from a biblical point of view before you can even understand. The end game in the plan of human redemption is to magnify God. It's not to give you a life on happy street. It's not to give you a happy, clappy life. It's not for God to suddenly turn into your Santa Claus. Nothing magnifies God so much as unveiling the beauty of his moral perfection. His moral perfection, what is that? It's not a sound and light show. It is the display of his pure goodness, as we sang in this last song. As it was revealed, the unity of the Bible is something. As it was revealed to Moses back in Exodus 33, 18 through 23, and 34, 6 through 7. Let's see if those are up there. All right. Let's go back to Exodus if you've got your Bible. Here we go. Here we go. Then Moses said to God, I pray you, 
this ought to be a prayer for every one of us. I pray you help me get that house. No, I pray you help me get over this illness. That's all right. That's not. Moses said, I know what I need going forward in this life and leading this people who can drive anybody crazy. I pray you, Lord, show me your glory. Let's move on. The next verse. And God said to Moses, God loved that prayer. He said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. Jesus said, this is the hour of my glorification, the Son of God. And he told Moses, I will proclaim the name, all that the Lord is about before you. Then he said, I don't owe you this. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whomever I will show compassion. This is a sovereign act of grace. All right. Now let's go to 34 verses 6 and 7. And the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, here's my glory. The Lord, the Lord God, I am compassionate and gracious. I am slow to anger. Aren't we glad? And I abound in loving kindness and truth, or the Hebrew word means also faithfulness. I'm a God who keeps loving kindness for thousands. I'm a God who forgives iniquity. He's showing Moses his glory, the sum of his moral perfections. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And yet, he remains a holy and just God. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, that is, the guilty who continue to spit in his face. I will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the grandchildren unto the third and the fourth generations, elsewhere it adds, who hate him. And that's where most of the world is. But there are the moral perfections of God summed up. Jesus said, you're about to see. My hour has come. You're about to see the moral splendor, the moral perfections of God displayed in the cross, in the resurrection, and in the ascension. At the cross, every constituent of God's moral perfection was breathtakingly displayed. When God's Son laid down His life so that God's enemies might be saved. I don't know who can comprehend such a gratuitous, free love, such undeserved goodness, certainly not me, lavished upon the undeserving. That is why at the cross, God was glorified in Jesus. In turn, that glorified the Father. What glorified one glorified the other. 
all orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. I marvel personally at the single-mindedness of our Lord facing imminent death, not just death, but an agonizing one and all the humiliation and the suffering that went with it. He was still on task, still seizing every teachable moment. When he laid down at that cross, he was like a lamb led to slaughter. You never, I don't understand this. There was no divine anesthetic. Laid down, maybe they stretched out his hands and they started pounding. Ah! You didn't hear any of that from Jesus. They drove the nails and the spikes. You tell me how. There's the glory of God. That was all because God so loved the world that he gave his son. The son gave himself voluntarily. I lay down my life, I'll take it up again. So that if those of us who trust in him might not perish but have everlasting life, can you think of any excuse for any human being on planet earth who knows who's heard about Jesus? Can you think of any excuse for them not trusting in him, not receiving him? Can you think of any? I dare say you can't. What Jesus now says to his disciples springs from his anticipation of a great harvest in the future among the Gentiles. He wants his disciples to know that faithfulness in the work of God is very costly. Started with him, it extends to us. He makes the point in the form of an aphorism, a maxim, a proverb. Verily I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat, this is first of all Jesus, falling to the earth, dies. Remember from my gardening days with my dad. It remains by itself alone. But if it dies, present tense, it bears much fruit. As a boy, I was amazed to see that stuff start sprouting up there. So much more of it than we put in the ground. The application here is first to Jesus himself. In proverbial form, he is saying that it's necessary to sacrifice himself like a grain of wheat in order to reap the harvest he came into the world for. To die in his case means literal physical death. But it has an extension in principle. He's telling them as he teaches them right up to his death. It means for us who follow him, Now get this, it means for us who follow him to abandon the self-seeking life most Americans, most people in the world are deeply into that. It means to give ourselves up to God. It means to follow Christ to the cross. But in principle, so that we in his service accept whatever pain and humiliation is necessary to discharge his work and to discharge his will. I ask you, honestly, 
as your heart testifies before God. No raised hands, please. Are you there? I'll ask you a better question. Are you praying? Are you trying to get there? We're so American. But are we so Christian? I don't mean you've got to run out of here and just, just abandon all your cars, all your houses, all your lands. Not that you have plural in those cases. Are you ready to? Do you want to? Is that the kind of heart you pray for? If the Lord should dial your number, he's not going to dial everybody's number to go die for him. He wants us to do that in spirit. But is that what you want to do? Do you want to be ready? You're getting there. But Jesus says that's what it's going to take. Listen, in this Christian life, there are no cheap harvest, folks. If we want others to live, your children, your parents, your loved ones, your co-workers, if you want others to live, we ourselves must die to ourselves. Which means, to put it another way, we must die to our own ambitions and appetites. That's very hard, especially if you're young. (laughs) I remember when I was a kid sitting under the preaching of Dr. James F. Frame at Fayetteville Baptist Church, reading my Sunday school literature. And I'd see Dr. Frame get up there, and he was was older. Looking back, he wasn't nearly as old as I am. (laughs) But he'd get up there. And tears would come to his eyes. And he'd start thinking about heaven. On autopilot, I'd look up. I didn't want Jesus to come. I wanted to grow up, play football, be a star. I wanted to get married. I wanted to have kids. I wanted to have all those American things. They will. But his life has moved on. I reached that stage. Are we, are we having fun yet? Many of you are, are there. Reach that stage where you want your life to count for Christ. If that's what you're wanting, you're honest. You look in your heart and you know, Lord, I have to confess in all honesty to you. I know as a child of faith. I know I'm not fully there yet. I know I struggle with those things. But I want to be there. Bless your heart. You're on the right track and the Lord will get you there. If that's where you want to be, we cannot accomplish God's work from an easy chair. Making a difference and leaving a mark and kicking a dent in history is never done by those who don't live on the edge of risk and self-sacrifice. As the Lord continues, verse 25, it is even more obvious that his previous words state a principle that went beyond his own service to the Father. It's talking about us, paradox of life. 
he or she who is loving his life. That's a little, you know, American life that God has given us. You know, our pretty little house and our nice cars and and all those other things that go with it. Our boats, our hobbies, all that kind of stuff that consume us. He who is loving his life, I didn't say this. Don't look at me and say, Jim, that's a hard saying. Is destroying it. Wow. He who is hating his life in this world is keeping it to life eternal. What does that mean? All right, I'm going to help you with that if you don't already know. He's saying that his followers, if they're serious, you his follower, is that what you want to be, aspire to be, aim to be, pray to be? You don't sit in the cheap seats of life where they live and serve. Life is pricey in terms of comfort and ego. I've spent all these years, you've seen these kids learning to play baseball or softball. Dad will go out there and put up a stake in the ground. They'll have a little cup that holds the ball, and they'll have a big bat. I feel like that's my ego. And the Lord just taking aim on that time and time again, just blasting it out of the cup. You got to get past that, all that ego stuff. The polar contrast between loving and hating one's life is very Hebrew. It's deliberate hyperbole. You all know what hyperbole is, you know, to speak, to kind of overspeak, to exaggerate it for effect. We can't easily understand what it, we can easily understand what it means to love life. What does it mean to hate life? To love life is to prize and cherish our temporal life here on earth so that we place supreme value on our own well-being. Health-wise, economically, you run down the whole list. And because we cherish life, we cling to it and we protect it, even pamper it. So that anything or anyone that threatens our grip on it threatens its survival or our enjoyment of it. So, Jim, what did Jesus mean, knowing that it's hyperbole? What did he mean that if we're going to be his follower, I mean, we can profess to be till the cows come home, but if we're going to walk in this building, head up, proud in a godly way, boasting and serving him and following him, what does it mean to hate our lives? Well, it means just the opposite. It doesn't mean to hate it in a vacuum. To hate our temporal lives in Jesus' meaning means that we place no great value on it compared to serving and pleasing God. We will sell it out cheaply to gain the high price of the high calling of God and inherit eternal reward that he has in store for us. Let me ask you a question. 
you have a choice of living a good long life. I had an uncle just recently died right at 103. A good long life. I don't want to live that long. And having family and friends about you and all the comforts. Or you have the choice of living five years. And in five years, making a dent by the grace of God for Jesus Christ. You've just got five years. And who knows what all that might entail. But the Lord says, you can glorify me if I give you five years. You can make a dent. Or I can give you 50 more years. And you won't count for dip. Which would you take? Which would you take? Jesus says, if you're serious, you want to be my disciple. You don't make a serious claim on that. Then that's where I want you to get. He didn't say I want you to die in the next five years. That's probably not the case. But I want my life to count. I meant to bring it over. I didn't. I have a prayer. Years ago I wrote, some of you have it. I've given it to you. The unconditional prayer, the utterly serious. And it asked God to do just that. Let me make a difference for you. Otherwise, kick me to the curb. It's not what it says, but that's the idea. For those who sell out for Christ, who count their lives as if it were of no great loss, who pull out the stops and live recklessly for him and appear to the worldly eye to give up everything, and enjoy the benefit of little that life has to offer. The funny thing is, Jesus says, paradox. They're the ones who gain what others are seeking. How do you figure that? A full and satisfying life that never ends. How do you figure that? Life does not consist, Jesus says, in abundance of things that we like to possess the goals that we like to achieve. That's not where it is. Those people who go after that stuff are some of the most frustrated people on the planet. You get money, you want more. You get money, you're scared to death of losing it. Scared to death. You're trying to figure out every way that Warren Buffett can tell you to protect your money. Then chances are you won't do it. With that paradox in mind, the Lord now explains what serving him involves. Verse 26, and the certain reward in store for all of his servants. If anyone serves me, is that you? Is that what you identify as, as one who follows, one who serves him? Is that what it meant when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? That you're, you're signing over your life to him? It's what it's supposed to have meant. If anyone serves me, let him, let her follow me. And where I am also, 
shall my servant be. That's a great promise. To serve Christ entails something far more than taking his name upon ourselves. It's far more than wearing a cross, a chain. Far more than putting some little icon in your car. Some of those things are not necessarily wrong, but it's something deeper than that. It's like marriage. When I married Aussie, I gave myself to her. She married me. She gave herself to me. Same with Jesus. Same with Jesus. To serve Christ is something far more than taking his name upon ourselves. Going to church, singing Christian songs like we did, studying the Bible, and attending prayer meetings, and giving money to support Christ's work. Now, I'm not in any way denigrating any of those Christian activities. No way. But I'm merely trying to emphasize that they are superficial in comparison to what the Lord has in mind. He wants you. Aussie does not want me to come up there and just live in that house with her. She does not want me to help her out with things, just help her out with things around the house and to say she's my wife. No. She wants, she expects, if I'm a serious husband, for me just to give herself to me. And I expect the same thing the other way. Same with Jesus. To serve him means to follow him. To follow him means for us to take up our own cross. And boy, they sometimes are many. In one place he says, crosses, plural, and to bear it daily. Who are you? I'm a plumber. I'm a carpenter. I'm a secretary. I'm an accountant. I'm a lawyer. I'm a soldier. You're all those things. Well, you are in a way. Who are you? You are a Christian. Christianos. Christians were first called followers of Christ. That's what you are first and foremost. First and foremost, you are a Christian. That means you do what you're supposed to do, go where you're supposed to go, but above all, you try to be everything that you're supposed to be. None of us get there. None of us are that good. We're fallen. We're broken. But the grace of God, the Spirit of God, is working in our hearts to bring us to the finish line. To serve Christ, I repeat, is to follow Christ. It's to walk in his ways morally. It's to enter into his purpose, glorifying God in all that we do. It's to accept the consequences joyfully, however punishing, knowing that serving and pleasing God has the eternal and the immeasurable reward that no earthly suffering can mitigate. To those who follow the Lord, the Lord promises that one day we shall be with him. Now, a lot of us here in this room, though you never know about young people and the vagaries of life, the Lord tells us 
But where he is, he's in the presence of the Father. We're going to be also. We will finish the course. And at the end of it, we will hear him say, Well done, you good and faithful servant. You didn't have a lot of notoriety. No, you planned to be famous. (laughs) But you were. For a while there, you were even infamous. (laughs) No, you had all those plans. You had all those dreams. But you said at some point, or you grew into it, Lord, I don't care. What you give, you give. What you take away, you take away. I just wanted, in my small footprint, in my little life, to be a beacon of light, to be salt in the earth, and to glorify your great name, and to walk after the steps of your Son. Now that's our goal, and as a pastor, that's my hope for each of you. I don't give a rip whether we're the biggest church in town. That's nothing. It wasn't a day when I could really said that, but I can say it today. But what matters to me, as I've told the Lord as your pastor, is if we have 200 people, that's my life, that's my pastor of my small footprint, most of whom really want to serve and follow Jesus Christ. That's so much better than having 2,000, most of whom don't. So much better. What a goal, what an ambition to have for your life is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Die to yourself. Die to your dreams. Die to your ambitions. If God sees fit, To grant one of those or two of those, well, praise God. But if he doesn't, that's just fine. If that's the way we can honor him. Well, on the way to the cross, that's what Jesus told his disciples. It all came back to them afterward and they got it. They remembered. And most of them died like he did to the glory of God. Let's make that our ambition. No matter what, that's our ambition. Anything else, if there's any plus to that, that's gravy. But right now, we just want to honor him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of our Lord Jesus. They're so instructive. They're so enlightening. And they're encouraging, our Father. Now may your spirit interface with our spirit, our Heavenly Father, and implant in us that ambition to love you and to hate in the way that the Lord meant it, our good old American life, just to get our priorities and get our values together and honor him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.